With all the complexities, obstacles, and frustrations facing medical providers today, you still have peers out there getting things done and moving medicine forward. Who are they, and how are they doing it? Welcome to Peer Spectrum, the show where we uncover the creative solutions, innovative tools, and advanced practices of our peers throughout the full spectrum of healthcare. Here are your hosts, Keith Menken and Colin Miller. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. This is Colin Miller here with Keith Menken. We have a very special guest for you today. Marty Jamison joins us. She's the executive director of the Association of Independent Doctors. This is a national organization with over 1,000 physician members nationwide, solely dedicated to defending and supporting independent practitioners. We don't have to tell you about the enormous pressures and obstacles facing independent physicians today. You may be one of them. We talk with Marty about healthcare consolidation, the impact this is having not only on you and your practice, but also your patients. We're going to learn more about what Marnie and her team are doing for you, even if you're currently employed with a hospital. They are making a real difference out there, and they have some pretty impressive legal victories. We're going to get into that. We're also going to learn more about Marnie's background and experience. It's pretty impressive. She was only 22 when she founded her own healthcare public relations firm. After 10 successful years, she sold the firm to pursue her passion for journalism, becoming a healthcare reporter for the Los Angeles Times and later the Orlando Sentinel. Marnie also has a passion for design. Even with all the demands of running the AID, she manages to find time to write a nationally syndicated column on home design. At Home with Marty Jamison appears in more than 30 newspapers across North America, reaching 7 million readers. Oh, she's also the author of two best-selling books. Marty has quite a story. Keith and I really enjoyed our conversation with her. We know you will, too. So let's get started. Marty, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Thank you. Welcome. Well, just take us kind of down the path. You have a really interesting background. You have everything from healthcare PR to having your own firm to doing design consulting work, actually a syndicated design columnist, uh, syndicated nationally, to now heading up an organization that looks out for independent physicians. Just take us through your path, how you got to where you are today and uh, what you learned along the way. Well, it does seem a little schizophrenic, but um, but, it, but it's been fun. I uh, started out as a journalism major, got out of college, went to, straight to work for a hospital because they allowed me to be an editor of their magazine, which is what I really wanted to do, was be a magazine editor. So I was working there in uh, California. And uh, as I was working for the hospital, working on their community magazine, the doctors were approaching me and asking me to help them market their, their own practices because they were suffering with managed care. This was back in the mid 80s. And so I started moonlighting for the doctors, helping them with their practices, doing that. And then the hospital found out and told me that was a conflict of interest. Now, I didn't even know what that meant. I was 22 years old and um, had to look that up. And they said, basically, I couldn't help their doctors get more patients to put more patients in their hospitals because that was a conflict of interest. So I said, huh. So I did a little math, which is the only simple math that I, I can do. And I realized I could make more money working for the doctors than I could in this PR job. So I left and I started my own firm. I was 22 and had no capital and no PR plan, but I had a little bit of moxie. And off I went. And three months later, I needed a secretary. And I pretty soon I grew a boutique firm in uh, San Fernando Valley, Los Angeles area, representing most of the major hospitals in the Southland, as well as physician groups. And that grew very nicely. And I um, had a very nice run with that. But I really had gotten away from my roots, which was journalism. I wanted to be a journalist. And so I, meanwhile, I was having a family and I had I was pregnant with my second child and thinking this firm is a little bit too much for me. So I sold the firm. And as soon as I sold the firm, the Los Angeles Times called me and said, gee, now that you're clean and sober, 
and you don't have a marketing firm anymore, will you write for us? And we need a health reporter who can write and understands the Southland like you do. I said, well, I'm on one condition that I can write from home. And they said, no problem. So I started being the health reporter for the LA Times and did that for a number of years and freelanced a lot for other major periodicals like Women's Day and Family Circle and Health and Child and Fitness and Prevention and Shape, lots of magazines and LA Times. So having a nice run as a journalist, and I moved to Denver along the way, and uh, the LA Times didn't seem to notice. They don't, they don't notice where you write from as long as your stories come in on time. So that worked out for a while. And along the side, I was also writing this little home design column about all the houses I was trying to build and decorate on with no money and no time and two kids who didn't share my standards and a frugal husband. And that's, this is going along the side. And, um, and when I moved from California to Denver, the paper that was running that column said I could no longer write that column because I was um, moving and I had to be local. And I thought that was really rude. So I was whining about that to the LA Times and they told me to call the Tribune Syndicate. Now Tribune Media, and this all relates, owns the Chicago Tribune, the LA Times, the Orlando Sentinel, which all comes together, seven or eight papers. Right. So I called Tribune Media and um, and I sent them my, my column and they I became a nationally syndicated columnist overnight, which was kind of bizarre because they only pick three out of 10,000 submissions. So that was a fun little thing to have happen. So I started doing that until about a year later when they had a $1 billion cut, that's with a B, and I was one of their smaller performers. So off I went. So I wanted to slash my wrist and lie in traffic that day. But instead, I called up the few papers that were carrying my column and asked them if they would stick with me. And I would still send them the column. And I d instantly doubled my small revenue that I was getting for the column because I was splitting it 50-50 with Tribune. And I got all the rights to what I had already written before that Tribune owned everything. And I ended up with an agent and a two book deal. And that was actually a very good day and the rights to market my own column, which I did. And now I'm in 30 papers. So I've done that along the way. And I've done that for 14 years, which just gives me a lot of um, access to media and a lot of um, it's fun. I, I do it for fun. But along the way, I'm still writing health reporting. And after my kids are getting grown up and had the nerve to go off to college, I called the uh, LA Times and said, you know, I'm really ready to get back in a newsroom. I'm in the middle of the Rocky Mountains. They said, oh, we, I, we didn't notice. Um, I said, well, is there any place I can uh, go? And they said, well, the Orlando Sentinel really needs a senior health reporter. So in 2011, I moved to Orlando. I became their senior health reporter, writing stories about all the shenanigans going on in Central Florida. And believe me, there we have more than our share. And I uh, had a nice run. And do, while I was doing that I, and writing about, among things like consumer health issues, the consolidation of hospitals and physician practices and the impact that was having on consumers and medicine and doctors, I met a couple of really interesting accountants who worked in town, and that is Tom Thomas and Carol Zercher. They are two CPAs. They have a very well-established CPA firm here in Winter Park, Florida, and they represent about 115 independent medical groups. That's about 40% of their total accounting firm. We have about 24 employees. So it's a, a big piece of their company, but not all of it. And they um, they were seeing firsthand the negative impacts that the consolidation of hospitals and physician groups was having on the cost of healthcare and, and doctors' morale and the you know how it was harming the community. It was causing financial harm to the community. It was limiting access. And they looked around and said, you know, somebody ought to do something about this. And they realized nobody had and they decided to form the Association of Independent Doctors. 
And I was the health reporter. They called me in to cover that. The first night, April 2013, I came in to a meeting of about 120 doctors who were at the inaugural meeting of the association. They each ponied up about a thousand or a thousand dollars. So that night we raised within a couple of weeks, we had a hunt. I say we, I was still the reporter at the time. They raised $135,000, had 135 members, and the association was born. My story appeared on the front page the next day, got shared around the country, brought in some more members, and that's how I got to know Aid. But I had also interviewed Tommy Thomas from time to time for stories, and I always found him to be very clear-headed, very smart, very passionate about healthcare, and and somebody that was very easy to understand, which isn't something you can say about a lot of um, healthcare executives or insurance executives. Right. And so anyway, that's how we got started. And then fast forward, that was 2013. The summer of 2014, Tommy and Carol asked me to dinner. I thought they wanted more media, which is why I usually get asked to dinner. And they said, no, in fact, we need somebody to run this association. It's gotten too big for us. We are about 250 members. We get phone calls every day. We can't stay on top of it and run our own firm. So we need to know if you would do this for us. So I, I gave it some serious thought. And two years ago and two months ago, I started as the executive director. That's fantastic. I, I have no surprise that they asked you. I mean, that's an amazing story. And we've got so many questions here, not just about healthcare and what you're doing now, but also what you've done in your past. Uh, so That was my, my checkered past, huh? <laughs> a great one it is. We've got so much here. We might as well just jump right into it, Marnie. Um, Please. Let's... Let's take a look at what's happening right now with healthcare. We all know there's a big push to become an employed physician. It's on the individual practitioners, it's on in groups, and there's more and more pressure coming against independent physicians. It's getting harder and harder to stay independent today. Just take us through just kind of a 30,000 foot viewpoint of what's happening around the country. How fast is this trend? Is it going to slow? Is it going to speed up? Give us an idea just, just from the top level what's happening. Well, it's a trend for sure. Uh, in 2000, 57% of America's doctors were independent, and today that number is 33%, one in three. So the trend is definitely going toward more doctors going into employment. And the pressures that are driving them toward employment are real. And I understand why doctors kind of fold their tent and go this direction. There is an abundance of regulation that's being asked of um, of the physicians, a lot more electronic medical records. Um, their overhead is going up and their reimbursements are getting cut. And there are some reasons for that I can go into. But between the regulations and the, um, the move from the Obamacare plan to pay doctors based on their outcomes and not for fee-for-service, that's scaring a lot of them. They don't really know how they're going to manage that, manage those outcomes and, and still make a living they just decide it's a lot of the hospital who will pay them a salary overhead who will um, protect them from all of this regulation and let them just quote practice medicine and that's that's a big driver well we're looking at different medical specialties which ones are more likely to be offered the hospital employment which ones are struggling more as independent physicians give us an idea who individually is feeling this the most so I have to back up a little bit and, and, and ask why it's attractive to hospitals to do this. So then that kind of answers that question. So sure. hospitals are wanting to capture market share. 
And when a hospital captures market share and they control more patients, they can ask for greater reimbursements from insurance provide for insurance companies, insurance payers. And so if they're if they can have more leverage, the more bargaining power they have. And as they raise their rates or they they get more reimbursement, the insurance companies to try to offset the increased premium they have to give to employers, they cut the pay of independent doctors. So it's it's unlevel playing field where the hospitals get more money for the same procedure that an independent doctor can get. So they not only get reimbursed more for the procedure, they also can layer in what's called a facility fee that independent right. doctors cannot charge. And this is a cost that's, uh, it can raise the cost two to five times what a freestanding doctor or an independent doctor can charge for the same procedure. So hospitals are looking to make more money and control the market. So who are the ones, the doctors who can bring them the most revenues? So they like primary care doctors because they are a feeder into a lot of specialties. So if they can control the primary care doctors, then they're going to control the referrals. They also like orthopedic surgeons, they like cardiologists, they like oncologists because these are big revenue producing providers. The ones they steer more clear of, not that they, they wouldn't want them at all, but dermatology, which doesn't have a high level of hospitalization, plastic surgeon, which is cash pay a lot, endoscopy, which does a lot of their own procedures in their own offices, and ophthalmology. These tend to be a little bit outside of their sweet spot. Let me um, uh, step in here and, and um, give you a moment of my background. The listeners know this, but I'm an orthopedic surgeon, or at least I was a practicing, orthopedic, practicing orthopedic surgeon. I worked with a really big group, and then I uh, broke off and became a solo provider. So I understand the attraction of being an independent physician. Um, I think that there's uh, two different types of group. There's the big group and the individual group. Um, and I understand the pressures and sort of the concerns that you have. Um, I want to break down a couple things that you said. The negative impact um, on the cost of, of medicine, I think you touched on. That's the fact that the hospitals, if I'm understanding correctly, it's that the hospitals can uh, add cost to it because they're basically the only game in town. They have more control over the cost. Is that correct? They do charge more. They can charge a facility fee and they can get reimbursed higher rates for the same procedure because of their leverage power with insurance, including Medicare. Uh, was there a, um, a negative impact that was measured on patient care? I believe that you referred to that. And if so, what is the, the negative impact of the, the lumping of physicians in the hospital system? Well, the impact on patients, the, the one that's been quantified many times is the, the impact on their cost. It goes up anywhere from four to 10 times if a patient is seen by an, an employed physician versus an independent doctor. And that cost compounds. So the example I like to give is, let's say I, I have a knee injury over the weekend. I go to my primary care doctor who happens to be independent, and he refers me to an independent orthopedist who refers me to a freestanding facility to get an MRI, and then I have to get treatment to take care of a torn posterior horn or a torn ligament on in their outpatient surgical center. And all of these are independently owned facilities, so I'm gonna get the lowest, I'm gonna get the 
I'm going to pay a fourth, about about a fourth of the cost every single time. So if my initial visit is 50, that might be 200 if I go to a primary care doctor that's owned by a hospital. If my visit to a specialist is, is $100, it could be $400. If my MRI is $500, it could be $2,000. And if my surgery is $5,000, it could be $20,000. So when you're work when a doctor works for a hospital he is obliged or she is obliged to refer only to employed physicians and refer only to hospital-owned facilities and refer only to hospital outpatient surgical centers or inpatient surgery so these costs compound for the patient they don't even know it they don't know if they don't know the question to ask are you independent or employed they don't understand that's going to put them on a vastly different track most of them are trained to say, well, do you accept such and such insurance plan? And they expect that to take care of everything. But with the deductibles the way they are today and the co-pays and whatever, that's, that can really fleece a family fast if they don't know these questions to ask. So that's one of the Marty, big let me, stop, let me stop you there for one second because that's interesting. When we think about a family doctor, for example, who decides to either sell his or her practice to a hospital or join a practice that's doing the same thing, when we think about the Stark Law, it is illegal to self-refer to yourself if there's a way of financially benefiting from that. Some people have said that the Stark Law also applies to physicians referring within their own hospital-owned networks. Um, and this is, it could be a legal debate. We don't necessarily have to go into that. But it, it is difficult for a hospital to tell somebody explicitly that they have to refer within that system. Mm -hmm. But there are other ways to influence them. Take us through some of those other ways that a hospital will use its influence to keep these patients in-house, so to speak. So, to speak. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's true. They cannot, and most, most contracts don't spell out the fact that you must always only refer to an in-house physician. But they do track. If you work for the hospital, if you're an employed physician, they will track where you refer your patients, where you send your tests, where you put your patients in terms of in an inpatient procedure, um, all those things, where you get your x-rays done, all of those things. And if you go outside the system, it's called leakage. And they pay very close attention to that leakage. And what happens, and this is probably fundamentally what's the worst part of this trend for patients, is if you're an independent doctor, your allegiance is truly to your patient. You're you're mostly bound to do what's best for that patient. I like to say always, but there are doctors who do things for other reasons. But let's just say the allegiance to the patient is foremost. But when a doctor goes to work for the hospital, that allegiance shifts to the employer because that employer is now tracking to see if the doctor will meet certain quotas. How many patients are they seeing a day? How many admissions are they are they putting into the hospital? Heads in beds. How many procedures are they ordering and how many tests they're doing? And all of these things get tallied up. So now that the doctor's next contract is predicated on how his outcome or her outcome and performance going into that. So they suddenly become very mindful of their numbers, whereas before they were more mindful of the patient. And it's, it's not that they want to order more tests or overutilize. It's because that's how their bread is getting buttered. So it's an, it, it is a natural incentive for doctors to want, or anybody, to want to do what's going to make them more money. So that's the dynamic that's bad for patients is the allegiance shifts from them to their, the doctor's employer. Even though it seems inadvertent, it happens. Right. So the question is, can an independent physician actually survive? 
I mean, if I'm on the fence and I'm saying, I don't know whether to go in the hospital or to keep independent, I call your association. What message do you give me? I'd say, hold on, hold on as long as you can. That is, uh, we just had our conference Saturday of uh, 130 independent doctors came to Orlando and we had a lineup of fabulous speakers, nation nationally renowned speakers. And one of them was Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who works at the American Enterprise Institute. He also is a commentator on Fox and CNBC and writes for the Wall Street Journal and Forbes. Anyway, bright guy. And that's exactly what he said when somebody said, he said, when somebody asked me, should I go to work for the hospital? He says, hold on as long as you can, because in three to four years, it's going to be a vastly different picture. Right. I know it hurts. I know that it's tough. I know all this stuff is coming at you, but we are fighting really hard. I've been on Capitol Hill four times. I'm going up again on December 4th. I, I am the, a voice for independent doctors that is just getting the ear of America. I've worked with the FTC. I personally have written amicus briefs that have intervened and helped stop consolidations of major health systems. We are making a difference. So I say to you, doctor, just hang in there. Trust me on this one. We're fighting hard. America needs you to stay independent. We can help you in a couple of ways. We can help you with reduced expenses. For instance, we have a great program called Aid Save. We've negotiated with McKesson, which is the largest supplier of medical right. supplies, to provide a substantial discount. We have large medical groups and small saving 20 to 24% off of medical supplies as a result of their membership in AID. So these are ways we can help. If we can't bring them in more money, we can help cut their costs. Right. Another problem that independent doctors have is they don't have the strength of numbers to get contracts with the third parties. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything that the association does? Can they do anything with that regard? Or can they encourage the, um, the formation of associations or, or rather, um, what's a good word for it? Uh, not partnerships, but, but um, groups of independent doctors who can do uh, um, uh, negotiations with the third parties. Is that something that you can be involved in? Is it something you can comment on? Absolutely. So there are a lot of organizations, not a lot, but there are other organizations that are fighting on behalf of independent doctors. And we are not some pointy elbowed association that is trying to knock everybody out of this space. We link arms and we try to get everybody running in the same direction and we talk. In fact, five or six of us are meeting with the American Medical Association president this Saturday for dinner. It's a dinner I put together. It's here in Orlando and six doctors are flying in from out of town. They're, they belong to other associations. Not all of them are even aid members. But we are all trying to make a difference. And what I re recommend that doctors do is absolutely join forces with other independent doctors and create IPNs or create a larger, larger practice, a larger independent practice so you can get the contracting strength, you can get the numbers. We here in Florida, although we're a national association with members in 30 states, we are based here and we have a lot of Florida members, there's a Florida IPN. And what I, when people say, well, aren't you the same thing? No, we are two sides of the same coin. What I like to explain to people is that an IPN works on networking and contracting for large groups of physicians. This particular one has about 1,100 members. So they wow. do have a seat at the table and they can have some bargaining power with insurance companies. So they're doing bargaining contracts and networking 
We, on the other hand, are doing lobbying, we're doing advocacy work, working with the media and working with consumers to educate them all on the importance of preserving our independent practices. So we work together. I think that a lot of the joining was a panic response. Um, I certainly know that's what went on in my community. People looked and they said, uh-oh, all this is coming down. I need to be in a safe environment. I'm going to sign in with the hospital because they, quote, understand. Not that it's necessarily a bad thing. I'm not a value judgment. But I think people are waking up now and saying, I traded my independence. I traded my uh, my ability to do what I want to do for a false sense of security. What can you tell somebody who is in a hospital right now who wants to go independent um, uh, about um, getting back into the independent sphere? And can you help them make that jump back to where they were before, say, 2007, 2008, when they jumped in to try to, to preserve what or try to make a, a, a life-saving, career-saving move? There are so many points that come up with that question, and it's right. a great question. But um, for let's start off with, yes, a lot of doctors feel like they get almost bullied into going to work for the hospital. A lot of times hospitals can be very, um, uh, very hard on doctors and they threaten them and they say, well, if your orthopedic group doesn't become employed physicians, we're just going to hire a bunch of employed ortho doc orthopedists to take your place. And then the doctors get very nervous about not having the referrals, not having the base. They have to hang tough. That's all I can tell you. It's really hard. And they get very intimidated. And the hospital tactics are are pretty can be pretty harsh. So I get why, you know, suddenly you might panic, hit that panic button, go in. So a couple things. I mean, the contracts to go into employment are where I like to say the devil is in the details. Most doctors, when they sign an employment contract, also sign up for a non-compete and a, um, a, a geographic area where they cannot practice within a geographic area. The mile radius might be 15, 25, 30, 50 miles, but for a year or two. So there's that non-compete clause that's really difficult for a doctor. What we have found and what doctors have told me is that the first year in employed as an employed physician, or really your first month, is your best month, and it goes downhill from there. So the doctors quickly get burned out on having an administrator telling them what knee implant they can use, what gloves they can use, what how many patients they need to see a day, when they can get a day off if they actually you know want to play golf after putting in an 80-hour week. All of these things they, they did not go to 12 years of school to have a mid-level administrator tell them how to run their <laughs> run their shop. So exactly. it it's demoralizing. They pretty quickly want to get out of that. Then their contract shows up and they realize it's it's tricky to get out of it. So I'd say before you sign anything, look at the fine print and see what your exit clause is and that you right. have one. And then if you're already stuck, and we have had several doctors in this in this boat, they will either sit out their non-compete or they will go to work outside of their, their area and start over. Um, uh, and yeah, I mean, they, they just suck it up. One of them did what did her best to get fired by seeing and becoming a very big underperformer. So she got fired. So she was able to then become a concierge doctor. So there are a few ways out of it, uh -huh. but it's not, none is pretty. <laughs> right. Well, um, I think it's my impression and understanding that 
um, there's some question as to whether the non-compete clauses are enforceable in a lot of states. Does aid have uh, attorney um, uh, resources that a, um, a doctor can go to if they want to review whether a uh, uh, clause is enforceable? Yes, we do. We have three founders. Two of them are CPAs, and one of them is a health law attorney. Okay. He was, he's was he been instrumental from the very inception, and he uh, is always in our hip pocket and available for our council and available to our members and somebody who absolutely gets them in and out, out of their contracts, and he's done that n a number of times. So, yes, we have... Uh, access to a, a wonderful person who does that. That's fantastic. Take us through some of the other resources that you have, especially on the lobbying side. I would imagine that when I'm thinking about large national health systems, they've got some serious pull and some serious money behind them. What kinds of things are they pushing nationally that are going to help them? I mean, one thing that comes to mind for me would be bundled payments. That's something that's more beneficial to a big health organization than a smaller independent one. What are some of the other things that you guys are fighting for? Well, or fighting against? Yeah, I mean, a macro is something that is is going to be crippling to doctors, and it's very scary. The um, you know ICD-10 has been paralyzing them, and, and these are the different regulations that are coming at doctors. We've helped fight to, I guess the best word is procrastinate. We've helped to try to push these the edict down the down the pike a little bit, hoping. That maybe in a new administration, some of these things are going to get reversed, repealed, some aspect. I don't think Obamacare is ever going to go away. And by the way, we are a bipartisan organization. We're for transparency and parity and, and health care costs being made so the patient can be clear about what it is and doctors getting equal pay and all that. We don't, we're not on one side of the fence or the other. But we are looking for regulations to lessen so doctors don't feel so compelled to go to work for a hospital. And bundled payment is one of those things. We would like to see things bundled in a way that makes it more digestible for a private practitioner to be able to do it. We're not saying it's a bad idea, and we're not saying we should all be fee-for-service, but it, you're absolutely right. It does drive doctors into employment when they realize they're going to get paid based on the outcome of their entire patient population. If their pop patient population skews to morbidly obese, smoking, diabetic, folks, they're going to have a, a bad outcome, you know, unless they get a bunch of young patients. So it's, um, it's, it's tricky for them to make that work. I would like to talk about something we are doing on the national stage with the FTC and something that we are able to do. We talk about advocacy work. So for instance, um, we've had three different cases where the Federal Trade Commission has intervened in a merger where we have written a paper on the Federal Trade Commission's behalf, they're called amicus briefs, and we are asking the appellate courts to side with the FTC because a merger will be harmful to a community. One of those cases happened in Idaho where St. Luke's Health System purchased a 45-doctor medical group called Saltzer Medical Group and said, oh, it'll be more efficient, streamlined care, better for the community, all the usual smoke and mirrors. And the uh, little hospital down the street, St. Alphonsus, said, wait a minute, we think you just violated antitrust law. And the FTC agreed with St. Alphonsus and sued the hospital for violation of antitrust law, and they won in Idaho District Court. Well, St. Luke's didn't like that decision, so they appealed it to the U.S. District Circuit Court of Appeals for the Ninth District. 
And that's when we weighed in and we wrote a paper, and this was before I came to work for AID. It was one of the first acts the founders made. They hired a Washington DC law firm, spent a lot of money that on a, in a, out of a, a very small budget to get the attorneys to write an amicus brief explaining to this court why they needed to unwind this merger because it was going to be harmful to competition, harmful to access, harm, it'll drive up healthcare costs. And it was in 20, 2015, February of 2015, the Ninth District Circuit Court of Appeals agreed to uphold the lower court's decision and required St. Luke's to divest itself of the merger of this 45 doctor group. And it was the first time in US history that a hospital had to divest itself of an acquired medical practice. And it, it set a precedent across the country for any hospital contemplating such a move that you will be sued. So that was a good success. Fast forward, this last summer, there have been two more cases. Two hospitals are trying to merge in Pennsylvania, Central Pennsylvania, Hershey Penn State, and Pinnacle Health Systems. Again, the FTC intervened, a lower court said, oh, you know, this is the way healthcare's going, might as well let them continue on and merge. It allowed them to continue to go ahead with the merger. And the FTC, always, only thing the FTC was saying, let us finish our analysis to find out what this is going to do to costs in that community. And the judges said, well, it doesn't really matter because it's not going to be that bad. Just go ahead and let it merge. So the FTC was saying, would you just let, went to the appellate court, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals this time and said, would you just let them cool down and slow down and not merge until we finish our homework? And that's all that they were asking. We weighed into saying, don't rush this. You can't unscramble the egg. Once this merger happens, it's too hard to undo it. Well, we fought hard along with the FTC. I wrote that amicus brief when I asked the, the litigator who called me to, um, to help him out again. I said, well, we don't have the budget to hire another Washington DC based attorney. He said, well, why don't you write it? And I, he said, you're a journalist. I said, well, that's just it. I'm not a lawyer. And he said, well, I think that would be refreshing. So I thought, okay. So off I went. So I became a lawyer last summer and, uh, and I'm just hypothetically wrote this amicus brief. And again, we prevailed. The, the um, appellate court said, you cannot merge until this gets looked at. But the two hospitals saw the forces against them and decided to stop their merger. They're not going to, they, they shut it down. They're not merging. So we stopped that consolidation. Central Pennsylvania doesn't even know how much we just saved them. And we did it again in Northern Idaho with Advocate in North Shore. They were trying to merge. The FTC said, blew the whistle on it. We came in behind him with an amicus brief and that judge just voted our way too for that, that court, the US District Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. So we're pretty excited about our record, our track, we're three for three with the FTC and stopping mergers and consolidations in this country. And we got a call from a, a group in Vermont, a group of uh, doctors, IPN in Vermont recently, they want to create an ambulatory surgery center for all 130 plus of their doctors to use an independent facility for patients. Sounds great. There is not one in the state of Vermont. Vermont has zero outpatient ambulatory surgical centers, which is crazy. Well, of course, the two big hospitals in town don't want that to happen because it's going to, they're going to be able to deliver care and better quality at a far lower price. So they're fighting it tooth and nail. So they called us to see if I could get the FTC to intervene and we're gonna to go to work for that. So that's how we're helping. We're on a very big macro level, moving things across the country in, in I think at a very high level for a pretty small operation. So we're excited about that. Congratulations, that's fantastic. Thank you. Without getting too much into the minutia of the legal issues here, 
I'm just curious, what precedent was set with that, uh, the district judge in Idaho, where what, what's the limit of how big a hospital can get until it becomes a monopoly, basically? How much do they have to buy up? Can there still be a competitive system there? What was the limit here that the government felt they had crossed? I don't know that they have that number. I think that's a number that will have to be repeatedly tested. I think it's hypothetical. Um, we would like to say, this is aid talking, no, not the appellate courts, that a hospital really shouldn't own more than 50% of any one specialty in a community. We would like it if hospitals didn't employ doctors, but failing that, they shouldn't own 80% of the oncologists. They shouldn't own 80% of the cardiologists. They should own less than half. That's what I think. Sure, sure. Let's take a step back here for a moment and talk about the message that you're trying to send and how you're trying to educate people. Take us through some of the current research and findings out there as it relates to physicians who become employed versus ones who are independent. And this would be productivity, for example. Uh, you know, do they see as many patients per day? Are they doing as many surgeries? Those aren't always good metrics of patient care, but there's something to measure. And also access to care in a community. Um, it's very important right now in the national health care debate to be able to pick your own doctor, right? Sometimes that, that ability to choose can be curtailed based off of the available offering in the community and networks of physicians and bigger hospital systems. Just take us through some of the research and what, what are we finding out about physicians who become hospital employees and how that differs from independence? Well, one study that came out last year that's, that's very representative, and it's, it's, I just comes to mind, but it's not the only one like it, is if a, if a, a cancer patient goes to an independent doctor and is, receives chemotherapy, and a cancer patient goes to a, an employed physician and receives chemotherapy, same chemotherapy, it could even be the same facility, if, but if it's com coming from an independent doctor versus an employed doctor, the employed track will pay 34% more in chemotherapy costs and their, in their chemotherapy treatment than in, in somebody who goes to an independent doctor. <clears throat> so that's one great example. Um, I think what patients don't realize is that, you know, say, God forbid, I had a, a breast lump and I need to get it removed. And I, my doctor, I don't know that my doctor is employed, but my, maybe the very, very breast, best breast surgeon in town is an independent doctor. And often the very best doctors are independent because they haven't had to fold the tent. They're really doing a super job and they're able to stay, keep their head above water. But my doctor's employed and he's going to refer or she refer me to an only an employed breast surgeon. My access is limited by virtue of the fact that they're only funneling me into the mothership. They don't go outside because they would, it would be frowned upon. So my access is definitely curtailed. Here comes a train. Anyway, so the access can get curtailed if you are going to see an independent doctor or an employed physician who then can only refer you to other employed physicians, and you don't even know your access is being limited. So that's another problem. I forget if there's another piece to your question. No, and we'll try to find that study that you mentioned and add that to the show notes so people can look at that. And I wouldn't mind finding that amicus brief that you wrote as well. <clears throat> I, I can send you well. all those. I can send Perfect. you the amicus briefs. I can send you that study. Um, I can send you med pack studies. If there's, I have something here. I'll find it for you. Um, I quote this a lot, but it basically shows that if if um, if hospital facilities charge the same, this is from MedPAC, the 
Medical Physicians Advisory Council, Medicare Physician Advisory Council, okay. every year comes up with suggestions to reduce the cost of Medicare. That Congress doesn't always listen, but they do come up with, and they have said this for years, that if for 66 groups of services that they charge for Medicare, the most common ones, 66 groups of services, if they paid independent, employed physicians and facilities the same as they paid independent doctors, American taxpayers would save $900 million a year in Medicare costs. Wow. That's, let's call it a billion. $900 million a year in Medicare costs. It just six, and that's just Medicare. That's not private insurance. And most people across the board, most healthcare is covered by private insurance still. Medicare is a big chunk. But anyway, that's significant. So these are the kinds of things, if we can make this adjustment, we, we would be saving billions. Uh, Colin had asked about uh, access. Um, uh, one of the problems is that there is good health care going on, but the problem is payment and also access in this country. Um, what uh, are, are there studies out there that talk about the access? Uh, because it would seem if you limit doctors to just the hospital-based ones or you try to limit a community to just hospital-based, you're going to limit access. Has that been proved? Has it been studied? Are there studies out there that show that? one way or the other? Well, I think the problem with access is more down the road. Physician burnout is at an all-time high. Mm -hmm. Physician suicide's at an all-time high. Physicians are leaving the profession at a rapid pace, and fewer college students are really interested in going into the profession. I have two college-age daughters, both bright, both biology majors, one's at Stanford, one's at Rice. Neither one of them is going into medicine. One's going into veterinary school and the other's going into clinical psychology. It means we'll get our heads on straight and our pets will be healthy, but we're out of luck when we get older. So this is not uncommon. They both looked hard at medical school and said, I don't want that debt and the future's too unpredictable. So I think some of our best and brightest are being counseled out. They're going into Silicon Valley jobs or other things. But when we get older and we, are, and we need it now, we're not going to have the access to the kind of doctors we need because they're leaving the field. The right. burnout is real, and I, when I look around and see who's out there, I see a lot of you know older doctors retiring at a much faster rate than the new ones are coming in. So I think that's going to be, and as, especially as the baby boomer curve gets older, we're going to need more healthcare. We're going to have fewer doctors providing it, and that's a recipe for disaster. Does aid have programs that address the burnout? You talked. Um, it is a real concern. Hang in there for a few years. You don't know what's going to change. Um, are you going to? Are there um, programs that aid has that that, uh, that will discuss that with physicians? We don't have a, a formal program for burnout, uh, and and I like I would like to. I think it's really important to try to help doctors over that. Um, I think staying. I mean, the the studies do also show that the happiest doctors are independent the unhappiest doctors are employed. So those numbers are important to look at. And I, and of course, counseling doctors to stay independent will help keep them happier. They do, I mean, most doctors are, are autonomous. They're, they're by nature autonomous people. They don't like to be told what to do. They're smart folks that wanna run their own lives and run their own shows. So they feel they sell out. And when they sell out, I think they feel like they're just constrained and trapped and not happy anymore. So um, I don't know how to solve burnout. I think that 
in order to make doctors happy, and I'm just getting philosophical here, we need to let them practice unfettered medicine. We need to let them practice without too much regulation. We need to let them practice without administrators telling them how to practice medicine, without insurance companies telling them how much they can pay, and without the government telling them how many codes they need to turn in for every every time a patient walks in the room. I have a, a friend who's an ENT surgeon, and she says that the first seven questions she asks her do her patients have to do with the government. Have you had your flu shot? Do you have any weapons in the house? And then she goes through all this stuff for the for the government. Then she says, good, now we can get to what you came in for today. That's not how we should be practicing medicine. So I think the way to solve burnout is to help doctors practice medicine that doesn't have government intrusion and hospital executive intrusion and intrusion from insurance companies. And that's what we're fighting for, and that will prevent burnout. Well, let's talk about one of these solo practitioners and just put yourself in the shoes of, of one for a moment. If you're an, an orthopedist, an OBGYN, or cardiologist, it doesn't matter, but you've just found out a major referral, referral source for your practice that's just been purchased by a, a hospital system. It won't be closed for maybe a, a month or two, but it's coming. And a significant portion of your practice and your business is based off of the referrals coming from this practice. Marty, what should that person do right now? What kind of steps can they take to protect their practice? They know they want to stay independent, but what can they do at this moment to protect themselves and communicate a message in an appropriate and effective way? Well, I mean, this is business. This is this is uh, market dynamics. And you, even if you're not in medicine, you could have um, a paper supply store and all your printing goes to one company and that printing company gets bought out and now you have nobody to sell your paper to. And, you know, it, it can work on any in any industry. So rule number one, and, and I used to have my own company, right? And I was very, very careful never to let one client take over more than a third of my agency. I think you have to be diverse. You cannot, if you're a provider and all your sources, all your patients come from one other medical group, you're very vulnerable. So it's basic business to have a diverse source, diverse sources of income and have a broad, a broad array of places where your referrals come from and don't let anyone dominate too much or you're putting yourself in their hands. You're in a very precarious position. There are other ways you can diversify your income stream. I'm not recommending anything. I'm just suggesting. Um, I know that some of my doctors have survived nicely because they brought they they acquired the office space next door when it became empty and turned it into a procedure suite, a little surgical suite. So they were able to do more surgeries in house and refer fewer out and really increase their revenues. Some are putting in um, cosmetic procedures, things that they can get are cash-based, some laser procedures or ways they can create a, get a little more revenue in their office. So look for other revenue streams. Look for ways to um, grow your practice in a way that you can command more profits and more char and have more charges coming directly to you rather than giving that money away and be sure you have a broad referral base. There are a lot of other ways physicians, physicians can make money. I mean, locum tenens, uh, working on a cruise ship, uh, doing consulting, telemedicine, I mean, you name it, the list goes on and on. Are you finding these employment contracts put limitations on a physician's ability to do things outside of their job for the hospital? I 
don't know how those contracts look. Um, I you would have to, and I think there's a lot of variety in how those contracts are drawn. I did go to the American Bar Association's Health Law Division conference this last October, or June, I think it was maybe it was June or July. Anyway, I spoke at it, but I also listened to a panel that talked about specific about physician contracts with hospitals, and the, the takeaway was they are very different from one another, and everyone kind of cuts his or her own deal. So those are the kinds of things that you would want to um, negotiate in ahead of time. But I don't know if you're allowed to take money from a pharmaceutical, for instance. I don't know if you're allowed to do um, get paid to speak. I just don't know. Sure. Marty, we're coming close to the hour here, and we, of course, want to be respectful of your time. We just have maybe two or three quick questions to finish things up. Is that okay? Sure. Great. Keith, is there anything else you wanted to ask? Yes, um, I'm. I'm wondering. Uh, looking at the people coming out, looking at the people who are in medical school. Um, besides the message of "hold on, it's going to get better," uh, is there an outreach that aid does, or uh, what kind of message would you give them to say, um, "This is why you should be an independent doctor," and and how can you reach them to try to get them to understand medicine can still be practiced independently, and that we can still have good people in it. That's a very important job and a very important uh, question. It, with the studies I have seen are that medical students don't give this a lot of thought until the very end. And right. they're not really trained in what under what model they should practice medicine, which is part of the problem. They don't really feel equipped to jump in and, and handle all these government regulations and the costs. Now they have medical school debt. Now they have the cost of starting a practice. It's overwhelming. I have seen this number. I have seen that 25% for sure are going to work for the hospital, 25% for sure are going to work for themselves, and 50% are undecided. So there's a lot in the middle there. All I can say is I would I we do offer a discounted rate for medical students. It's $100 for them to join AID versus $500 a year for membership. So they we they can start to get trained and network and talk to other independent doctors. I would like them very much to to speak to independent doctors. We have one um, young OBGYN who would strongly encourage independent students to go in independent you know, obstetrics in her case, or she said just, you know, really we have doctors that you can talk to that counsel them through the hurdles because the hospitals will be recruiting them hard to, to join them. And especially, they're especially vulnerable because they don't have a patient base they're really selling or giving up. And the salaries are very nice. And in some cases, the hospitals will, will help cover the loans. And that sounds very, right. that's very attractive. So it's hard to compete with that. All we can do is say, you know, we need, we want doctors to be happy. I'm not anti-hospital and I'm not, I'm not anti-doctors going to work for the hospital. I want doctors to be happy. And when I see the happiest doctors are doctors that can practice free of the encumbrances of all the things that we've been talking about. And I'd like to, I'd like to see our young doctors come out of medical school and be able to make a go of it. And maybe the best thing they can do is go to work in an independent doctor's office and, and try to grow in that practice and become a partner. But there, there are strategies, and I, I hope that they pay close attention to those options. Marty, we got to you know, explore one question here towards the end. And If you're an independent physician and you really do believe you've given it your all, you are up against some tremendous odds right now. There's really tempting offers on your table, not only in your own community, maybe somewhere else for a, for a job offer. 
are there times when it's just no longer worth it to keep fighting? If that's so, how do you assess that situation? How do you know that you've really done everything you can? And then how, of course, do you assess that offer and balance it with the independence that you have now? I mean, I think you need to talk to your colleagues. I just, there was a story that just came out of, um, I want to say the doctor was in New York. Um, and he looked to be an older gentleman. I would guess him to be 69 or so or 70. And he just sold his practice. He had, a, he was one of five doctors and he just said, we, we gave it all we had. And, um, you know, he said, so then a reporter asked him, you know, did you make the right decision? And he, his answer was, I think so. Um, now, you have to look at that. I'm a, I've been a journalist most of my life, so I kind of understand the dynamic. What, what can he say? He can't say, oh, no, I made a, the wrong decision, because his employer's going to read that. So he kind of made this qualified, I think so, which I read like, uh, I have some doubt, but I have to say that. But he's also, the important thing is his age. He's at the end of his earning cycle, so he's taken the golden parachute, getting the buyout, and you know he can suck it up for a couple more years and then retire. And that could be very attractive too. So uh, I guess, I, I mean, I, I, I think that a lot of doctors just feel they're, they're very, they're discouraged, they're despair, but we just had this conference. And again, we had 130 doctors come to this conference, independent doctors, and they are fine doctors. They're working hard. They're, they're gonna survive. They're not giving up. They're, they're passionate about what they do and they're adamant that they're not gonna do it for anybody but themselves. And that's the spirit we need to keep alive. That's very encouraging. It is. Well, two quick questions here, and we'll be we'll be finished here for the afternoon. Uh, I had to look around yesterday, and I found a video of you for a major national uh, television network oh, talking about Christmas trees. And of course, we are. <laughs> we're getting. Uh, we don't even say what today is, since we avoided politics completely on election day. That was good. <laughs> but the holidays are coming up, and we often talk about, in fact, we just had an interview last week about um, designing office spaces and medical practices. Give us some, some ideas about how to spruce up your practice in the right way <laughs> for the holidays. And, yes. <laughs> and to follow that up um, more seriously, just give us an idea how people can learn more about you and more about the organization and um, explore more of what you have to offer. Well, they can certainly find out more about AID at www.aid-us.org, our website. Um, I do have two hats. I have my own website, mindyjameson.com. It features my books, mostly. Um, I'm very visible. <laughs> if you put my, if you, you found out, if you Google my name, you'll get more than you want. You did a great um, job. Thank it. you. Thank you. I, yeah, yes, I have in my life. I have also been the chairperson of the national, the spokeswoman for the national Christmas tree association. Don't ask me why. Um, no, home design is an important part of my life. I do. I do like things to look good. And, um, I think, you know, I used to, when I worked with physicians and helping them market their practice, I'd come in and, and if there was a dead plant in the corner, I'm like, you've got to get a new plant. And he said, why? I'm busy with patients. I said, because if you can't keep a plant alive, how are you going to take keep me alive? You've got to, if perception is everything, you've, you've got a dead goldfish in your aquarium, that's not a good sign. So keep the place looking nice. It needs to be clean. It needs to be well decorated. And the plants need to be alive. And the fish need to be alive. And, um, and then it's a good start.
but um, you know, I think that presentation means a lot. <laughs> well, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Marty, we've had a lot of fun today. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom and experiences. We're going to get a lot of notes up for everybody to explore more about you, the organization, and your mission to help independent physicians. We'll get that up on, on the website. And thank you again. I, I really enjoyed thank it. Thank you. Thank you for your interest and your forbearance for all the weird things I do and uh, your attention and your, your interest today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Marty. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us today on Peer Spectrum. It's Colin Miller, Keith Mankin signing off. We will see you next time. Looking forward to it. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. We support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at PeerSpectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at PeerSpectrum.com.